Hello and welcome. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a Programme Director at the Institute for Government. Thank you very much for joining us for this event to mark the one-year anniversary of the unification of probation services in England. The new unified probation services combined the previously outsourced management of medium and low-risk offenders with the public sector national probation service, which managed high-risk offenders. Launched by the government on the 26th of June 2021, it was the fourth major restructuring of probation services in the last two decades. The transition was not expected to be easy. The 21 CRCs oversaw hundreds of thousands of cases, employed thousands of staff across hundreds of sites and used different operating models. They were run by six companies, scores of subcontractors with different processes, terms and conditions and working cultures. So how well has the transition worked? What more needs to be done to improve the running of probation services? And what lessons can be drawn from this experience for other major public service transformation programs? Uh, to discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by three fantastic speakers. First up will be Jim Barton, the Executive Director for the Probation Reform Programme at the Ministry of Justice, who I believe is joining us from the MOJ's own event to mark the, the one-year anniversary. So thanks for making time for us today, Jim. Um, he'll be followed by Suki Binning, the Chief Social Worker at CTEC, Executive Director at the Interventions Alliance and former CEO of the Kent, Surrey and Sussex Community Rehabilitation Company. And finally, we'll have Linda Neumantis, Head of Probation Inspection Programme at Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Probation. Following the opening remarks, I'll ask a few follow-up questions before opening up to the audience. If you have a question for any of our panellists, then please raise your hand if you're attending in person, uh, or if you're watching remotely, then please use the Q&A function that is available. Uh, and if you're watching remotely, you can submit those questions uh, while we're speaking, and I'll try to get through as many of them as possible. Uh, I'd also encourage those watching remotely uh, and in person uh, to tweet using hashtag IFGProbation. Right, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Jim, our first panellist, for some opening remarks. Thanks, and apologies for not being in the room uh, with those of you in London today. Um, I think your, your room looks slightly more glamorous than the dowdy uh, room I managed to commandeer at uh, a hotel in Sheffield. Um, so to give you my reflections on probation reform, um, they, they basically split in two. Um, the, the first is to celebrate what we managed to achieve in terms of successfully unifying the probation service last June in the context of COVID. And so often government is rightly challenged and criticised for its failure to deliver major programmes to plan. This is not one of those programmes. So uh, what, th there were many commentators, many individuals who doubted our ability to successfully bring the CRC contracts to an end to transfer over 7,000 staff from, as you say, more than 50 legacy employers when you include subcontractors to make sure those staff um, uh, had a role, had working IT, were sufficiently clear on our processes to be able to operate safely and effectively on day one and were paid at the end of the month. And of course, there are exceptions to that, but at a headline level, we, we achieved that. And that's been validated by um, Infrastructure and Projects Authority, Government Internal Audit, and others who've looked back at the progress the programme managed to achieve in that immediate structural unification. 
But the second part of my reflection would be to acknowledge that there are still really significant challenges that face the probation service. And the simple fact of structural unification didn't and couldn't fix those challenges. It brought together the existing cohort of staff. It could not magic out of thin air the several thousand additional staff that we know we need to recruit into the probation service and indeed are recruiting in order to be able to be fully staffed to achieve our target operating model and to reduce workload for frontline staff. Nor could it overnight address the legacy challenges that we have both in our estate, our physical estates, and in the IT tools available to our staff on a day-to-day -day basis. Probation reform has helped on both, and uh, there are now, I believe, over 50 properties across England and Wales that have been head-to-toe, modernised, updated, um, to provide uh, a more modern and appropriate workplace for our staff and people on probation. There are many more properties where we know we have work to do to address um, the legacy of um, investment challenges around a property. And similarly on our IT, um, we all know that the tools available to our staff um, need updating, need improving. Probation reform has taken us a considerable way down that road, but there is much still to do. Um, probation reform as a programme is due to close at the end of this calendar year. That still feels right. I think at some point you, it, it's right to remove the kind of machinery of a major programme and instead hand the task of the work still to do over to the operational line, over to our regional probation directors. Um, but I'm in no doubt, under no illusions around the scale of the challenge that uh, lies ahead over the course of the next few years, I would say and it will be great to hear from Suki and Linda and get into the debate, um, the probation reform has moved us forward significantly compared to the position we were in prior to the reforms. Jim, thank you very much. Um, that's great. Um, Suki, I'm going to come to you next. Uh, following the announcement of uh, the unification of probation, our priority was really to ensure the safe transfer of services. Um, and during that uh, initial period, we raised uh, some concerns, uh, not at least attempting to uh, restructure during a pandemic. One of the other issues that we raised was uh, regarding services that the CRCs provided falling through, through the gaps. So services that the CRCs had commissioned because we couldn't see uh, a route for them in the new target operating model. Also, more work needed to be done on what was originally the dynamic framework, now is the CRS, in terms of better understanding uh, the need, those commissioning needs. Uh, what we found very quickly after those commissions was that some of those services have been oversubscribed, so we're seeing double the number of um, individuals being um, referred. So that was one of the other issues that we had raised. Um, I've spent the majority of my 27 years in probation, in probation um, trusts and um, in the CRC, always following a approach which looked at resource following risk. And what I'm talking about risk is the risk of harm, not the likelihood of reoffending. So the first time in my career as a senior leader, we had the opportunity to really focus on and understand the needs of low to medium risk individuals. And if we are to really reduce reoffending, we need to continue to build that evidence base and those interventions for those individuals. And uh, another issue that we had kind of raised was the kind of 
how quickly the change had happened, two major restructures in a period of seven, uh, six to seven years. Those kinds of restructures should never be rushed. Um, and also to have more opportunity for a wider and more open debate about um, models of delivery. Um, we would have liked to have seen that debate happen um, and certainly explore other options when you have that once in a lifetime opportunity to make significant changes. So for example, we did share um, a model that we thought may address some of the issues around having possibly, for example, a system where one agency looks after those sentenced to custody and another agency that looks after those that are sentenced to a community order. Both agencies could be uh, public sector uh, run agencies, but the community one more aligned with uh, PCCs, local authorities or devolved areas. Uh, so for me, it's really about if we're having major restructures to open up the debate uh, a bit more. But finally, what I would like to say, and it is to echo uh, what Jim has said, uh, full credit to everybody in HMPPS, the CRCs and the MPS for the safe and smooth transition of staff, service users and all the assets. It's not an easy uh, feat, so absolute um, credit there. I think the service now needs to go through a period of looking at really understanding you know, the needs of the people that we work with and adopting new approaches uh, to work with those uh, individuals effectively. Thank you. Uh, and to our final speaker, Linda. Lovely. Thanks, Nick. Um, so, yeah, just to reflect on what our chief inspector said at the time of uh, unification, um, he was very clear that um, unification by itself um, wouldn't address, wouldn't be, wouldn't be a magic, um, wouldn't be a magic bullet. Um, so that's very similar to the point that Jim, uh, that Jim has made. So merely transferring thousands and, of, of staff and tens of thousands of cases um, wouldn't deal with the, with some of the underlying and quite fundamental issues that our inspections have uncovered uh, over, the last, uh, over the last few years. So some of those issues that we've um, uh, have found over the last few years have been around that critical lack of, of frontline staff, um, excessive um, caseloads, as well as overloaded middle manager grades, and as Jim has said, some poor quality legacy um, accommodation from the, um, from, from the MPS. And nor, our Chief Inspector Justin Russell has said, and, and nor would unification solve the issue of the, the lack of investment over the past decade in the broader ecosystem for probation, so mental health, drug treatment and multi-agency um, partnerships on which we know probation relies um, so, so much. But uh, I think both Suki and, and Jim's point, in practice, you know, there were no major disruptions to service um, provision over the transition period as cases and staff, staff were transferred over. So I think, you know, credit absolutely due um, there. But however, as, as Jim has said and, and the wider probation service has, has said, that actually unification, um, you know, last June was merely the beginning um, of the journey and genuine transformation is a much, much longer road which requires sustained additional investment and leadership as well as, as culture um, change. So we commenced our new inspection programme in autumn of last, um, of last year, which is now conducted at, at PDU level. And we've undertaken six um, PDU inspections across England and Wales, with the results seeing four PDUs rated as inadequate and two as requires improvement. So as has been highlighted, um, genuine transformation is a much longer road, but I think one of the, the questions is at what point should we start to expect to see better um, inspection um, outcomes? 
So just as part of our inspection um, outcomes, some of the, the key things that have been highlighted, and I think these have been touched on a bit already, is just in relation to, to staffing, and staffing feel that they are um, over, um, overworked and have caseloads which is, are unmanageable, about staff vacancies and, and, staff, um, and staff leaving as well. And also, I think that one of the things that's come out of our inspections is the impact of new staff starting um, in, the, in the service. Fantastic that lots of new staff are starting in the, in the service, but I think it's been a challenge for staff to get the appropriate learning and development opportunities. So I guess all of this has taken place um, uh, you know, in the context of, of COVID, which we can't talk about unification without talking about um, COVID. So that we know, so from our inspection findings, we can see that obviously there's been a lot more online um, learning and staff not being in the office to learn from more um, experienced um, um, colleagues. And what we found as well from our inspections is that where there are staff shortages in the PDUs, that staff need to be really clear about what to um, prioritise. One of the other um, findings from our um, PDU um, inspections is in relation to services. Um, so we've found that there needs to be more of a focus on the implementation and delivery of services to improve um, desistance. So clearly service delivery has been impacted by, by COVID. Um, that feels to be, or not feels, we've found um, a lot of check-in um, appointments are happening. Obviously lack of availability of accredited programmes and ability to deliver um, RAS. And of course there's the um, ongoing challenges of the unpaid work um, backlog. And also, and I think to um, one of Suki's points that we've also seen in some areas, there's not been enough of the, the CRS um, provision. And finally, um, as well, one of the things that we found in our um, inspections is around the, the quality of practice. Um, and we found that risk of harm practice in, in particular has been um, insufficient against our standards in 60% um, of, of cases. So those are our findings from, from the um, six PDU inspections that, um, that we have done to date. But clearly, lots, there are lots of opportunities um, to, to come. But as I say, we can't talk about unification without talking about the impacts of the pandemic um, as well. Thank you. And I, I really want to talk about uh, kind of COVID uh, and the kind of the very tight timeline um, for delivering this. But uh, beforehand, I'd just like to focus firstly on the fact that the, the initial transition did go well w without disruption and Jim you, you quite rightly said that lots of organisations had, had raised concerns about the department's ability to do that um, given disruptions we were one of those uh, organisations and you know lots of others that we've spoken to as part of some research that we are doing have said that you know despite that type time frame it was delivered on time and and well and so I'd just like to kind of dig into how that has happened. Jim, as, as you said, the government doesn't have a great track record uh, on, on these types of things. I wonder, from your perspective, what, the, what were the kind of the key success factors that led to the lack of disruption in that day one transfer? Sure. So, so to start with a caveat, if that's OK, I mean, I, I would absolutely acknowledge it was not perfect. And if you remember a staff whose pay wasn't correct at the end of the first month, you know, th that is a problem. And, and you know, please don't anybody think we're kind of hiding behind a kind of impression that it was perfect. It wasn't. I, I agree with the premise of the question, though, overall, I think it went it went well. I mean, I, I point to two things. So the, f the first 
goes to a comment Suki made, which is it, it's testament to the professional commitment and vocational drive of all of our staff and leaders. And, you know, Suki, I'll name check you in that process. So for those leaders who've given their heart and soul to making CRCs work, you know, they were able to set that to one side and make this transition work and focus on getting it right for their staff and the people on probation that they serve. So I think some of this has come down to the vocational commitment of everybody across the probation service. And it's no accident that we've survived um, you know, two, three, four major structural changes over the course of uh, the last 10 years. And um, the second, though, I think is something which is a little bit more kind of change management, -y, which is we had the archetype of what people call a burning platform. So that sense that you, you have to achieve something by a given date and not having the option to contractually extend CRC contracts beyond midnight on the 25th of June last year meant there was no option but to be ready. And I think that focused everybody's minds and efforts. And it also required us to be quite um, robust in determining what changes we would try to achieve for day one of the new model, as opposed to defer and pick up through the second phase of the reform programme. And um, probably worth acknowledging, this is a change that the vast majority of staff were behind, except there are exceptions to that. And it also had broad support from our trade unions. That helps. Thank you. And so I want to, I want to come burning platform question uh, in a second, because I think for, for some, the platform probably wasn't as light as it was um, for, for others. But I just want to ask from your perspective, one of the questions that there often is about when you're insourcing major services is the kind of the relationship between government and the supplier when the supplier knows that there isn't going to be a contract going forward. How, how, how well did you feel that the process went and how did you feel the kind of relationship was maintained? through that process? I think there were two parts in terms of how it uh, went and the, the relationship. I think the initial kind of um, notification and announcement, um, I don't think that was done as well as it could have been done in terms of uh, the relationship with the CRC chief execs, for example. I have openly, uh, through that period, uh, said that I was the custodian of the CRC, regardless of who the owners were, public sector, private sector, a new kind of parent company coming in, and not to have been kind of um, in, been engaged in that process and just kind of an announcement made and no opportunity to kind of have those discussions um, wasn't as you know, I would have wanted it to be. However, once we'd kind of moved past, and as um, Jim said, we had a clear date, and that was the date, and we weren't able to move on that note, then everybody's kind of, yes, we need to do this, and our priority was that kind of transfer. We did have a challenge in terms of explaining to our colleagues, so, you know, 1,200 people across uh, Wales, the South West, and Kent, Surrey, and Sussex, as to why we were doing that in the pandemic. People were working extremely hard to keep uh, the show on the road in terms of seeing our service users through the pandemic and it was really difficult to kind of explain why this was happening but once we had those clear milestones and really good relationship with Jim's kind of program team um, and Spock's to kind of liaise with things became kind of much smoother. And let's move on to that that question of of Covid and you know, 
clearly this would have been a, a major transformation at any time. Yeah. Everything was made more difficult by COVID. Is there anything that would have gone better if it, if it had been delayed or any benefits that might have come from delaying the process or staggering it or in some other way taking account for the fact that there'd been this hopefully once in a lifetime disruption to all of our lives? Yeah, no, that's, that's really, that's really interesting, a really interesting question. I'm not sure I actually know the... No, I don't think I really know the answer um, to that. Um, but I think why I wanted to highlight it is that COVID brought so many problems, um, particularly for the CRCs, um, around the unpaid work um, delivery, um, the accredited programme delivery, being able to deliver RAS, all of which are really big jigsaw pieces for, for probation. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of those issues still um, still remain. So whether even if there hadn't have been um, unification, I'm sure that we would still be struggling with the, the probation would still be struggling with those um, areas. Jim, I was going to I was going to come to you next, because I know that uh, you were kind of when, when kind of we spoke and when you kind of spoke publicly in kind of early 2021 about this process in the run up to the transition, you were always very, very clear that there was there was no going back. There was no alternative. But you knew it was going to be a challenge. I mean, can you just kind of talk through your thinking of why it was such a hard line on the timing? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, so the, the decision by ministers at the time was, I, I suppose, informed by a, two things. So firstly, and I'm expecting this to be played back at me in a second, but not wanting to expose ourselves to a further period of CRCs because they were underfunded, struggling to deliver services to a standard that we could tolerate. And there were exceptions to that. One of those exceptions is represented on your panel. But th there was a very clear view, which I think was justified at the time, remains justified, that if we were going to do this thing, we should do it as quickly as possible to be able to break that cycle and not be bound by the, the limitations of the CRC contracts. And um, the, the second, which informed the decision to pull the delivery partner competition so that Prior to COVID, our intent was to contract out unpaid work and accredited programmes. We pulled that in the early days of COVID, and that's the process that uh, Suki's uh, referring to. That was driven by a clear view that we wanted control. So in the context of COVID, we didn't want to be exposed to a kind of ongoing dependence on, first of all, being able to see a competitive process through hoping that those providers would survive COVID. None of us, I think, had a sense of its, what its impact would be, but also being able to kind of just bring all of this together into a single kind of single entity, single programme. I, I think that decision remains absolutely the right one. Um, I'd acknowledge Suki's point around it was a decision that was made you know, pretty much behind closed doors. And um, I mean, to the, the thrust of your original question, so I, I have to acknowledge that, you know, we had to cut the scope of the Commission Rehabilitative Services that we were trying to put in place for this time last year. Um, we're only just now correcting that. So we've run competitions to provide finance benefit and debt support, dependency and recovery support. So, you know, there are, that's that's a literal thing that if we had had more time to do, would have been in place early. I, I don't think that deficit outweighs the benefit of getting on and, and delivering it to that target date. 
And, and so I'm going to come in with some um, questions for the audience um, in a moment. And so do keep submitting them online and do think in person. Just before I do, see one final question um, to you. As, as Jim just said, the, the CLCs that you were overseeing were, were performing better. From your perspective, what else, what, what, were there alternatives? Would you have liked to continue for a bit longer? Were there certain parts of your delivery model that you thought could have been retained with more time? Absolutely. Um, just prior to the year prior to COVID, uh, Kent, Surrey and Sussex, so the CTEC uh, run CRC was, our, we stepped into the Southwest and Wales where the uh, provider there went into administration. And the work that we did in that one year, um, I think was pretty uh, impressive. And that was recognized by HMIP. We moved from uh, requires uh, uh, inadequate to requires in improvement, addressed the issue of kind of um, staffing um, gaps that were there in Wales and the Southwest. So we absolutely would have wanted to kind of see that progress from kind of requires improvement to, to good because we were certainly on on, on track. So yes, the short answer is we would have wanted to see that through. Great. Okay, I'm going to open it up to the audience here in person. So if anyone has any questions, please feel free to raise your hand. Okay, I'm going to go to yeah this gentleman here and then this gentleman over here. Yeah, well, my name's, uh, oh, oh, if you could use the mic, that'd be great. Thank sorry you. Sorry about that. It's karaoke. Um, so my name is Mike Guilfoyle. I'm a former probation officer, a member of the probation union NAPO, and also a magistrate uh, and a member of the Magistrates Association, but I'm not here. I'm here in a personal capacity. Um, and thank you to all our speakers for giving some wonderful contextual background to the reunification process. Uh, one aspect of the practical outworking of uh, sentencing, as a sentencer, I've been sitting in South East London for eight years in the adult court, is the RA. The RA was mentioned earlier. It was subject to, the, sorry, the rehabilitation activity requirement. It was subject to a critical report by Glennie Stacey two or three years ago, uh, who was then the Chief Inspector of Probation. Uh, but I have to say, it's one of the most bewilderingly vague sentencing options that magistrates have and sentences have. Uh, the metric is unclear. And I, I'm just thinking, is it about time to re-establish uh, or bring back a supervisory requirement as a bedrock to more effective engagement uh, with service users and those who appear before the courts rather than what seems to be a rather loose fig leaf for some of the shortcomings in the delivery models that you've been talking about. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll just we'll take two questions together, so we'll take the, the other question as well. Hi, my name is Phil Weekly. I was Director General of NOMS a long time ago. I'm just interested in where we are with the resources, because Jim said we were struggling to deliver in the CRCs because some of them we didn't think were resourced properly. There were no doubt other issues, but certainly was one the probation inspectorate had been uh, giving some evidence for. Uh, you haven't, as far as I know, got a slug of new money, and it's probably unlikely you're going to get a lot of new money in the current environment. Where are we on thinking we're fully funded to do all the things you're trying to do, and how much will the problems you have to grapple with relate to not being as funded as you would ideally like to be? Uh, thank you. Two quite uh, detailed quite and thoughtful questions. Um, Jim, I, I think I'm going to come to, to you on those first. So on the, on the question of uh, funding, given, given the ambitions for the service and on the uh, rehabilitation activity requirement and bringing back the supervisory requirement. 
and so take me in reverse order and hello phil would be lovely to see you i can't see you but um nice to hear your voice again so on funding um actually good news so um through the spending review process we managed to secure an increase in the probation budget of 15 15.15%. That's an extra 155 million a year. And that will allow us over time to increase the number of probation staff. So not probation officers, but the total size of the organization from its current position, which is about 17 and a half thousand to above 20,000. That will take us several years um, due to uh, recruiting, training staff. But by 25, 26, we'll be an organization that will be significantly bigger. And that 155 million of investment um, has then been topped up with 93 million over the three-year period for unpaid work, um, as well as additional investment in reducing reoffending and uh, electronic monitoring. So for once, certainly the first time I can remember, we can't use the we don't have enough money um, excuse to not tackle and turn around the issues that we have in probation at the moment. Obviously, we want to hold on to that money. We'll be doing our very best to do that. And on the first question around role supervision, so I think it's a legitimate debate um, and we can absolutely, I think, trace some of the challenges we've got in the system back to, um, you know, that combination of factors that happened in 15-16 with outsourcing, changing the legislative framework and then extending supervision to the under 12 month group. And I think, I think those changes all coming together and make it quite difficult to unravel what what was the root cause of the problems we then experienced. I think our current view is that, of course, we could go back to kind of change the legislation and reflect on it, but this is more about practice and the expectations that we set um, of ourselves and of staff. And I think Linda made reference earlier to that kind of drift during COVID, maybe drift isn't the right word, the move during COVID to more remote contact, more of a kind of check-in culture, and that is the thing that we need to address, I think. And I think we can do that within existing legislation. I'm not dismissing the question, though. I think it is very much a legitimate debate. But our current position is we don't need to invest time and effort in legislative change. We should be focused on practice. Thank you. Suki? Just to kind of um, make a point around the kind of additional funding, which is absolutely um, great news. Uh, one of the things I'd be really keen to look at, that, that investment going into the continuous professional development of our colleagues in uh, the, the probation service. I think for a number of years in, in probation, we haven't kept up to date as other similar professions. So, you know, I'm, I'm a social worker, the CPD kind of arrangements for social workers are much more kind of uh, advanced than where we are uh, with probation colleagues. So that investment into kind of training um, our colleagues will be really good. But also in terms of the, the role of uh, probation officers and probation service officers in terms of accessing services, also kind of playing the role of looking at other services that are available. Uh, we've had a culture previously in, in probation, and I'm hoping it's one that's going to be addressed, where probation staff don't tend to refer to services. Even in the probation trust, we had um, a history of we would procure services, then they wouldn't get referred referred to. So um, putting more effort into kind of training um, would be really good. Um, and also into kind of uh, research around 
evidence base for uh, different cohorts of individuals. Um, you know, we're very lucky, I think, in England and Wales, we have an inspectorate that, as well as inspecting, have a really strong uh, research kind of uh, function as well. And the work that's kind of been done there in partnership with academics and other research bodies is really useful and to look at some more investment into that kind of evidence base for probation. Thank you. And, and Jim, I just wanted to pick up with you a bit on the, the workforce question. Clearly, there's been uh, a lot in the news uh, at, at the moment about uh, public sector workforce uh, pay and conditions, etc. And I wondered to what extent you feel confident that even with that extra money, given the kind of uh, demands of inflation that, that, that might come from staff, but also, I suppose, the the competition uh, for those staff from other parts of the public sector, particularly, for example, the police that are also looking to recruit a lot of staff at the moment on, you know, relatively good terms and conditions, etc. Whether you whether you feel that money is going to be confident or sufficient to fill the acknowledged workforce gaps that you have. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no getting around the fact that the workforce market is incredibly complex and challenged at the moment, and we're, we're not immune from that. Um, point to a couple of, kind of things that give give me confidence going into uh, the next couple of years so the first is we have been continue to be successful in recruiting so we brought two and a half thousand trainee probation officers in in the last two years um the highest on record as far as i'm aware we're currently recruiting at scale for unpaid work supervisors and um, 500 new jobs across the country funded by that 93 million pounds of those roles and um, we've been really successful in all bar two of our 12 regions. So the, the, the kind of the current response to our offer, if you like, uh, in the market has continues to be positive. Um, but we're, we're in no way um, kind of resting on laurels or thinking that there are not going to be headwinds um, over the, the course of the next couple of years. I think it's impossible to pick up a paper at the moment and not feel that the next couple of years are going to be challenging. Linda. Just briefly, and I think I said it in my opening remarks, and, and just to kind of reinforce what Suki's just said about that continuous professional development and the importance of it. And actually, you know, it's fantastic that all of these new staff are joining the, the service, but I think what we are then finding is you have got then an inexperienced um, workforce. So with that, uh, there are opportunities, but there are challenges. Um, there are real challenges with that as well, and it's around... How can the service um, ensure that staff are also staying, so that those experienced staff stay um, within the within the service? Thank you. I'm going to bring in some um, questions that we've had um, online. So I'm going to start with a question we've had from uh, Nicola Carr, which is uh, directed to Jim. Uh, if probation reform programme ends this year, who will drive the next phase of the reforms? And if it is regional directors, how will they be empowered to do so? Thanks, Nicola. Um, so uh, on the first part of that question, um, the, the leadership team in probation uh, stays pretty much the same post-probation reform ending. Uh, Amy Reese will be there as our director general, Sonia Flynn as chief probation officer. So the, the kind of, you know, the driving force, if you like, behind uh, probation reform isn't changed by us closing the programme as an entity. Um, on the second part of the what I'm going to do is a different question, but that's that's not to worry you with. Um, on the second part of that question around RPDs and empowerment, so so absolutely with a caveat, and I I think 
that there is still a kind of sense that we're finding our balancing point as a organization that is national it used to say it in the name it doesn't anymore but it's a national service across england and wales but that can only deliver at a local level and i think my reflection would be when we formed the national probation service so the precursor in 2014-15 that pendulum swung hard to national uniformity and a top-down approach to leadership and um, I think we've had to channel a version of that through the first phase of probation reform where we had to get something delivered everywhere by a certain date that drives you towards more of a centralist approach i think everybody in that leadership team now agrees the pendulum has to swing back i think there are differences of opinion and perspective about where its kind of settling point is though but absolutely would see the story of the next couple of years being increased um uh, I was going to say independence, that's not the word I mean, in increased control and flexibility in the hands of regional probation directors. And Linda, just to come to, to you on that, what kind of assessment um, has the inspectorate made of the, like, the, the capability or the capacity of regional directors to, to deliver that and on any thoughts on the, on, on the timing of ending the reform programme? Yeah, no, thanks again. Good, uh, good, good question. I guess what we've, we've seen in our um, inspections to, to date is, you know, there is some tension that we are seeing between what's happening at a national level and a regional level and a, um, at a PDU level and how much, um, I suppose, how much flexibility does a head of a PDU have, um, for example, to be able to deliver because some of the things they may want to do may not be within their, um, may not be within their gift. So I think what we are finding um, at, the, at the moment is that I guess those those relationships between um, national, the region, and a PDU level are still I think they're still being worked out, and I think that's what we are that's what we're finding um, at the moment. Obviously, for us as, a, as, an, in, as, an, in, as an, an inspection, as an inspectorate, you know what we are interested in is what is being delivered on the on, on the ground, and not necessarily for us to go. It should be this model or that model. It's about how effectively our services being delivered on the ground. But it, it still feels as if there is a, a way to go to work out those relationships. Thank you. I'll come to more questions um, in the audience. Uh, we've got three. I'll, I'll take all three together. We'll go there, there, and then here. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you. It's uh, Rory Lane here from KPMG. Um, so, Jim, you mentioned at the start some of the uh, the programme of reform that is still to take place, and you mentioned um, the digital programme. And I'm interested to understand the the thoughts of the panel in terms of how transformative those uh, digital reforms could be to increase efficiency, but also effectiveness within the probation service. Great. And then in yeah. here. Yeah, my name's Fred Punsonby. I'm a magistrate. I'm also on the Labour front bench in the House of Lords. And I wanted to ask about the Labour Party's proposal um, regarding community sentences, which would be more administered on a, uh, on a uh, community level, if I can put it like that. So I see that as similar to the youth referral panel type arrangement. And I, Suki, I was interested in your comment that there were the scope for increasing uh, multi-agency working. This could be an example of an increased uh, type of multi-agency working with, with the probation service. I mean, to, to what extent do you think that can be increased? 
and I draw on my own experience sitting in the domestic abuse court in, um, in Westminster where we have an input from the local authorities and the social services to us when we sentence and make bail decisions. So to me, that's quite a good example of an increased multi-agency working. I mean, what's your view on the, sc the scope of increasing that you know, considerably further? Great, and then finally we'll take this third question and then go to answers. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you, um, my name's Rob Allen. I'm a independent researcher and consultant these days. Um, it's about uh, prisons and, and the function of helping people when they're leaving prisons. I've read a few inspection reports over the last year or so which suggests that that bit of work might have suffered, stuff that CRCs were doing uh, and are no longer doing and, and the, the Unified Service and its subcontractors aren't necessarily um, providing that in the same way or to the same level. I just wondered whether you would see that that is perhaps one particular service area where there has been a, uh, a diminution of, of, of the quality of, of work. Thank you. Okay, um, I'm going to come uh, to you first, Jim, particularly on the kind of the digital reform question, but then your, your thoughts also on community sentences on, for support for those leaving prisoners as well. Yep, thanks, Nick. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the simple answer to Rory's question is the potential to be transformative is massive. And to give uh, credit to uh, CTEC and uh, also MTC Novo, you know, they demonstrated what you could achieve through uh, better digital tools. And um, to put this in context, we estimate that about 1,600 years of probation practitioner effort goes into filling in Oasis um, every year. That's a massive amount of time spent on a system. Now, of course, some of that is good productive time because it's part of the, the process of um, assessing uh, risk and need information, but the potential to reduce that and therefore for that time to be invested in other activity um, with people on probation is massive. I think we're in the foothills of that process, but our, our ambition is pretty significant. Um, on the second question um, around the potential for community supervision to be done at more local level, so I, I think at its best it already is to an extent. I think there are great examples of partnership working with PCCs, with local police forces, with um, local football clubs, where community feedback is really embedded in what those local stakeholders and communities want to see as the recompense for when offenders commit crime, commit harm in neighbourhoods. And um, I would absolutely accept that's not the totality of, um, of unpaid work or community payback today, but that direction of travel towards giving you know, greater voice for communities is one that I, I think we are already on. And, and then finally on the point around prisons, so yes, um, the, the move away from what was enhanced through the gates to our new resettlement model has introduced two things that we are still working through. So the first is uh, those um, gaps in community rehab service provision that we talked about earlier. Um, to give an example, we're in dialogue with providers at the moment about potentially extending the support sorry, extending accommodation support to unsentenced prisoners. And um, that is something that I think makes sense, makes sense to all of us, but we're still to do. And then the second is in some establishments, the uh, 
staffing of those pre-release teams is challenged by wider staffing um, challenges within the regions. So there, there are definitely establishments where we know and HY Prisons is telling us as our IMBs that the current resettlement service is not at the level we want it to be. And that's firmly on our, our radar to address. So I'm going to come to you um, next. Just quickly on the on the digital question, I know that kind of your the case management system that you had was one of the things you were kind of the reforms you were most proud of and, and worried that that was that was being lost. Can you just provide a little bit of detail of what it did and why it was better uh, before? And therefore, kind of in answering the question of what's possible, um, and then welcome particularly your thought on kind of community sentences and collaboration between local agencies. The, the tool that we had was actually designed by practitioners. Um, it, it also ensured that there wasn't a lot of duplication because the previous system that we had worked in, uh, in the probation trusts, you know, you were putting the same information in time and time again, and it was taking a long time to kind of uh, do those assessments um, as well. And the tool didn't have much flexibility. So if your approach kind of changed and you had new interventions, you would have to wait a long time to update it. Whereas um, one of the kind of benefits we had was the kind of agility to change things really, really quickly. Uh, and it was a tool because it was designed by kind of uh, practitioners and changes could be made really quickly. Um, that made kind of things much more easier and saved time so colleagues could spend more face-to-face -face time with uh, those on supervision rather than sitting uh, behind a screen and filling in a form. Great. And then, particularly, any thoughts you have on the, the second question about kind of community sentences and the, the scope for more multi-agency working locally? I think uh, absolutely. And I know that the regional probation directors that I still work with, you know, I have strong relationships with the PCCs and are starting to kind of look at kind of co-commissioning. So that's really, really welcome. So I think there is a real opportunity there around some of those community sentence um, provisions. I also think uh, you referred to uh, youth offending teams. I think probation can learn a lot from the approach from uh, youth offending teams, particularly around that multi-agency um, approach. And then, Linda, particularly from you on the on the third question about the kind of the the quality of um, support for those leaving prison and the kind of the extent of the disruption that this transition has caused to that. Yeah, indeed. So certainly from the um, PDU inspections that we've done to date, we found that the pre-release um, work um, has been has been quite poor. Um, has been quite poor overall. So has been um, disruptive. Um, obviously, at the end of the end of the, through the gate, with the end of the CRCs and through the gate, um, we are just in the process of doing a nomic um, inspection um, as well, offender management in custody, and that that will come out uh, that will come out shortly. So I'm sure there will be some interesting findings in that. But but clearly, the pre pre release work, as you as said, has been impacted. Great. I'm just going to take a couple of questions that we've had um, online. Um, both of which um, refer to the voluntary sector. So um, Rob McMillan from Sheffield Hallam University has asked, um, do speakers think the balance is right in terms of involvement of voluntary organisations in delivery? Uh, repeated experience in competitions is that larger organisations can succeed, while smaller community-based and specialists uh, lose out. 
Uh, and then also a question from uh, Kate Paradine, the CEO of Women in Prison, who said a question mainly for Jim. Uh, what lessons can be learned for government about commissioning services and involving a mixed economy of providers, including from the small and medium-sized charities? So, so, Jim, not to break a habit of life, I'm going to come to you first on this. Yeah, so to answer the two together, if that's okay, um, so I'm going to get myself into a definitional debate here, but um, by the strict letter of voluntary community sector, BCS, um, two thirds of the CRS contracts that we let were to voluntary sector organisations, except that the majority of those are towards the larger end of um, what constitutes a, a DCS organisation, but ju just on the strict letter of this, the, the majority did go to the third sector. And um, that said, we, we absolutely recognise the kind of thrust of the point that's been made through both questions, that our, our commercial processes do lend themselves to organisations that can put resource and effort behind them and, you know, have on the shelf already various certificates and evidence that they meet uh, the standards that we set. Our response to that is to try to move to a position where we make much greater use of grants and we're exploring and um, moving to a position where any arrangement that we enter into that's under a million pounds whole life value would be a grant rather than via uh, full procurement. Now, that isn't a, a panacea, it's not a magic bullet. Um, grants have their own um, bureaucracy around them, but we're doing that principally to try and address the point that both Rob and Kate are making, that it can be experienced as onerous and off-putting. And when you, you kind of are faced with the, the full fat version of our procurement processes, and that's something we've, we've consulted on recently um, via Clinks. So can I just come to you on that? Because obviously CTEC um, were a prime contractor and had quite a lot of uh, subcontractors uh, from the voluntary and community sector as part of the delivery. I mean, how well did you find that that relationship worked? And were there, for example, any of your subcontractors that you knew were unable to um, win contracts through the new model that you think we're kind of we're, we're missing some important expertise there? Uh, absolutely, we did have uh, our subcontractors say to us that you know once they'd looked at the target operating model and you know, the dynamic framework, they weren't in a position uh, to go uh, forward. But I think the point that Jim makes around kind of grants is a really uh, good point because that is a, a route into ensuring that we don't lose the expertise of those um, organisations. Our experience was, you know, you can't deliver probation services on your own. You know, there are small organisations out there that have a big impact and it's really important to keep uh, those organisations um, on board. And I think, you know, one of the areas that we uh, have seen particularly impacted is around services for women in terms of what was spent um, previously in term and what's spent now on women's services. So again, for me, over the next couple of years, I'll be really keen to kind of um, look at that and you know we as you know a, a private organization an employee-owned organization also had to make the decision in some cases not to bid for some of the work that we were already delivering because we couldn't we couldn't make it um, work and in some areas we took the decision that we weren't going to kind of bid in an area because we had a, a voluntary sector third sector subcontractor that was going to kind of bid in that area as well 
I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask you this question. I think you've uh, largely already uh, answered it. So someone's said, um, is outsourcing really the right delivery option, given that such services are all dependent on referrals uh, in to start the transaction, yet such referrals have to start with a responsible officer who Suki has already said often don't refer? Would it be better to keep it all in-house? Even in-house, the, uh, the point I was making was even when I worked in the probation trust, there is a cultural issue around referring. So you can have an in-house uh, accredited programme team and that issue still is uh, there. So I think one of the challenges is around addressing that. And that's why I think the point around kind of training of colleagues and the continuous professional development is where we need to focus to change that, uh, to change that culture. Great. I'm going to come to see if there are any uh, final questions uh, in the room. If not, uh, I'm going to ask uh, one other question that we've received um, online, which was, um, what improvement will happen around uh, GDPR and data requests with other agencies? Uh, so this person said that CRCs and then unification were given as excuses locally for substandard sharing requests. Are there any standardizations and local level agreements coming. Jim, I think that's for you. <laughs> yeah, so a, a couple of different threads to that, perhaps. So um, information sharing between probation and other criminal justice partners and vice versa, um, I think has long been an area in which um, you know improvements are possible. Um, we've recently um, refreshed our guidance for staff in court around the need to not only seek information, but to receive that information back before we should be recommending an electronic monitoring curfew, for example. And um, that can lead to some frustration because sometimes that information is, is it takes time to secure it from local authorities or from police. I'm sure those organisations experience similar from us. And um, part of this is about information sharing protocols. That's something we're always looking to sharpen up. The real fix here is is systematizing um, more of that data share wherever possible, and breaking down some of those barriers to us each accessing others each other system where we've got legitimate and um, operational need for that information. And um, so, so yeah, an, an area in which I think we've we've long standing had channel challenges, an area in which we're we're making slow but steady progress. And I just wanted to um, pick up on. Um, something we discussed earlier in terms of the disruption caused by COVID. Clearly, there's been again, a lot of discussion uh, in the news recently about the uh, effectiveness of civil servants when working from home versus working uh, in the office. Jim, am I right in thinking that your team was largely remote throughout this, this whole transition? And I therefore, therefore think, wondered if you had any reflections on what can be done remotely versus what needs to be done in person. Yeah, just to reassure you, this is not my spare bedroom. I, I, I am out at a work event today. Um, so, I mean, I, th I think it's generally amazing what we've all collectively managed to achieve through COVID, um, both in terms of keeping the operational service running, um, but also demonstrating how we can adapt our kind of working practices. Um, yeah, so to give you an example from reform, you know, we, we turned on ahead our approach to dishing out new IT kit and it was all dispatched to home by secure um, couriers. We wouldn't previously, I think, have stomached that. We we demonstrated that was possible. And my, my own reflection, thinking about my team, is that f for those 
who were part of the team pre-COVID, I think it was a a challenge and a headache, but something we could get our heads around. I think for colleagues who've joined the team during COVID, it's been far more challenging because they just don't have those networks and connections that they can rely on. And I think we see a version of that now in uh, Linda's comments and HMIP's observations on the way practices developed in, um, in in regions in PDUs, that some of the bonds between teams have become just a little bit stretched or frayed due to not having as much time together. And I, I think that will kind of see us just incrementally, I think, try to keep shifting the dial back to more face-to-face -face working wherever that is possible. Linda? Yeah, no, just to, um, just to comment, really, and I think to, to Suki's point about the importance of evidence, I don't think there is enough evidence about um, remote delivery of, of probation and probation work. And I understand there is going to be research done um, around that, so we would welcome that. But, you know, fundamentally, the work with people on probation, a big part of it is about relationships, which is done um, which is done face to face. So, you know, we really, really welcome what we're hearing about the, the drive for practitioners to be in offices and, and work with people on probation. And I'm just going to ask um, one um, final question. Um, first, Suki, and then to Jim. Suki, is, is there any, anything that you haven't discussed that you, you wish had been done differently uh, in this process, or that if you were advising a future government that were considering a kind of a transformation of similar scale, you would would be your kind of key bit of advice to them when considering something like this? To go forward in a collaborative manner and speak to um, other kind of like providers, partners um, and, and stakeholders. There's a wealth of kind of experience and knowledge out there and to engage those. And Jim, is there anything you would do differently? So I, I would, it, it, this is not exciting, but I'm going to agree with Suki. Um, I think it feels uncomfortable with hindsight that the decision in 2020 to stop the delivery partner competition was a decision that we we made and, and then communicated to CRCs rather than engaging them fully in that process. And if I had my time again, I, I might look to approach that differently. Um, I think there was there was a, a, a there was a rationale for that approach, and um, I echo Suki's reflections that it doesn't necessarily feel consistent with the way that we've always tried to work together in partnership, and um, which is very much the probation way. Thank you. Well, with that, I'm going to bring the discussion to a close. Uh, thank you to our three speakers for a really um, fascinating discussion. For all those who submitted uh, really thoughtful questions um, and for those who are listening back uh, later on SoundCloud, YouTube or on a podcast platform. Um, for those who want to know um, more about this topic, uh, the Institute will be uh, publishing uh, a report uh, relatively shortly looking at this process, what went well, what went less well and what can be learned um, for the future. Um, so keep in touch uh, and until then, thank you very much. Goodbye.